Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On the program tonight, talks continue between the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and federal and provincial ministers. We'll have an update from BC, and our MPs will be in to assess how the government is handling the situation. Preparing for a pandemic, we'll hear from an infectious disease expert on how prepared Canada is for an outbreak of the coronavirus, what we should be concerned about and what we should be doing. Also, we'll talk to the head of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce about the possible impact on the Canadian economy as stock markets plunge and the virus spreads. And our parliamentary journalists will be in to look at the week in federal politics, including the Conservative leadership race now that the deadline for candidates has passed. But we start with those long-awaited meetings going on in Smithers, B.C., between federal Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Carolyn Bennett, her B.C. counterpart Scott Fraser, and hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation, who oppose a pipeline across their territory. Now, yesterday, at the beginning of the talks, Wet'suwet'en supporters of the pipeline were also allowed into the meeting to make a statement. Today, the hereditary chiefs only met with the government ministers. Here's what the ministers had to say and going into their meeting. And you'll also hear from Nathan Cullen, who's a retired NDP MP from the region, who was appointed as a special envoy between governments and the Wet'suwet'en. There's a lot of work that's been done. Uh, as you know, we did have an agreement uh, with the Wet'suwet'en chiefs two years ago on child and family. That table is, is working uh, hard and, uh, and uh, BC has had uh, um, ongoing uh, conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Minister Bennett uh, is right. We had, uh, of course, we had 25 hours to as initial conversation several weeks ago, and uh, the province has been working closely with the Office of Wet'suwet'en and the Wet'suwet'en uh, 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 people on um, environmental initiatives, uh, in, uh, stewardship initiatives. So uh, there's, there's, we we have a relationship already, um, and the, the important thing is that we're we're willing to roll up our sleeves and get to the complex and difficult issues. And uh, we began that yesterday, and we're going to continue that today. So how likely is it that if today is a successful day that uh, the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs will eventually get to meet with the Prime Minister and the Premier of British Columbia? I think that uh, we need to do some hard work. We would want any meeting um, with the Prime Minister and the Premier to be a good meeting um, and therefore we have to do the work uh, and uh, and uh, and it it is uh, um, it's really important that that uh, that Minister Fraser and I are, are uh, have been um, delegated by the Premier and the and the Prime Minister to do this work, and that's what, why we're here, and that's the work we're going to do. I remain cautiously optimistic for what it is that we're trying to engage in, and I should say that none of this is obviously easy. These are uh, very very difficult conversations to have. There's a great deal of pressure on all of the parties. Uh, to come to resolution, but getting a good and lasting solution to this uh, remains uh, paramount because uh, of, of so much uh, that, that is in, in consequence of it. Well, joining me now to take a look at a tumultuous week in federal politics are MPs from the different parties. Sean Fraser is a Liberal member for the Nova Scotia riding of Central Nova. He's also the Parliamentary Secretary to the Finance Minister. Chris Dontremont is the Conservative member for the next, well, nearby riding of a Nova Scotia riding of Cent Western Nova. And Laura Collins is the NDP member for the BC riding of Victoria. All three of you, thanks for joining us. Thanks for My pleasure. Thank okay, you. well, let's start with um, Sean Fraser. On behalf of the government, the talks are 
ongoing now in Smithers, B.C. After three weeks of disruption, of blockades, of protests, Minister Bennett and B.C. Minister Fraser are sitting down with Owetswetan. Uh, what should can Canadians expect out of these meetings? There's been a lot leading up to this. What should we, what should we be watching for? Uh, obviously, there's been a number of different uh, frustrated voices in the uh, the previous few weeks over over this issue, but we're not going to get to a, a sustainable and, and durable uh, resolution without talking. Uh, so I do see these talks as a, a positive first step, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, all of the problems that our nation is facing are going to be resolved in the immediate term. Uh, what I'm expecting to come out of these meetings is a, a, a building of trust uh, and, and hopefully uh, steps toward a resolution that will last beyond the next few days and hopefully put us in a position to actually avoid this kind of disruption um, going forward into the future. Okay, is it your understanding that uh, these are leading up to a, a meeting with uh, the hereditary chiefs with the Prime Minister? Um, well, right now we know that the, uh, the ministers who've got the competent jurisdiction uh, are, uh, are, are the right people to be in that room. Um, I want to uh, ma make clear that uh, should a, a meeting with the Prime Minister uh, be the, uh, the necessary step to resolve this, this dispute, I expect that that would be on the table. Uh, but I don't want to prejudge the outcome of the talks. Uh, to the extent that the solutions that, uh, that are available can be addressed uh, with the voices in the room, I wouldn't want to uh, forego those solutions just because uh, there should be another voice at the table. Uh, but I know the Prime Minister is personally watching the file very closely. But I, I do have to say the uh, diligence with which uh, Ministers uh, Bennett, uh, Ministers Miller, uh, Blair and, uh, and Garneau have been dealing with this file has been uh, nothing short of impressive for me. I know that the full cabinet is seized with this issue and they, they have the ability to conduct these talks in a responsible way to help identify a long-term solution to the problem. Uh, Chris Dantremont, your, your party's been asking for action uh, both with regards to the blockades but also with regards to a resolution of this situation. What do you make of where things are at now? Well, so far we're about three weeks too late uh, to have these discussions. It's, it's good to know they're on the ground today actually uh, meeting with the, the Wet'suwet'en. But at the same time, this is something that could have been done a, a number of weeks ago. Uh, the ministers could have been there. The prime minister could have made himself available. And yet we've had weeks of disruptions to our rail service. Uh, Nova Scotia, the extreme ends of our country, uh, have not been able to get uh, products. Uh, propane issues is still uh, in our ridings. Uh, we're still worried about uh, access to uh, feed and other products coming through those uh, corridors. You know, we, we need to get moving on these things, and the rule of law should be uh, followed here. I, I know the Prime Minister finally came out and uh, sort of adopted our, our, our line on this one, but, you know, really, we, we've got to have people off of those rails. We can't have the unsafe situations that have been happening in the Belleville area, you know, throwing pallets on the, on, on the, on the rails. We, we've, we've got to have some sense, sensibility happen here. Okay, Laura Collins, uh, I know you, the NDP, you've been calling for the Prime Minister. Uh, you say that he should have met with the, with the hereditary chiefs weeks ago. Um, but one of the things we saw yesterday was that the matriarchs from the Wet'suwet'en, as well as some of the proponents of the pipeline, were allowed into part of the meeting yesterday. Could it not be argued that it's probably better to let them try and deal with the very complex situation before we call in the Prime Minister, before the, if the Prime Minister were to meet with them? There's a lot of groundwork to be done before. We are in a national crisis, and if the Prime Minister had made time weeks and weeks ago when the hereditary chiefs first asked to have this meeting, I think we would be in a very different position. And it's interesting to note that the Prime Minister did have time to fly around the world. He did have time to meet with the heads of big pharmaceuticals, of Suncor and Enbridge in the past couple months, but he couldn't make the time to meet with the hereditary chiefs when this is impacting not only Indigenous communities, but communities across Canada.
Um, Sean Fraser, I want to ask you, uh, there's been two polls out. I mean, the Angus Reid poll out this week, and there was another poll, poll by, um, uh, which was out today, both of them showing that your government really is suffering in terms of what Canadians are thinking of the handling of this whole issue. Uh, the Angus Reid poll, as well as this blue uh, poll, uh, both said that the majority of Canadians don't think the Prime Minister handled it well, uh, and the majority of Canadians don't think the country is heading in the right direction when it comes to reconciliation. So what what do you make of that? You know, it, it highlights for me what a uh, what a difficult issue this is for, uh, for for so many Canadians, regardless of your, your perspective on this issue. I think uh, virtually everyone that I, I speak to at home uh, wants the uh, the blockades to end and the economy to operate at full capacity, as I do, as our party does. Um, and most voices, though not all, uh, want to have a respectful dialogue with the First Nations communities uh, that are impacted, not just uh, in the Wet'suwet'en territory, but right across Canada. Um, the Prime Minister's uh, approach to this has been to say, you know what, we actually do need to move forward to ensure that the economic disruption does not continue. Uh, but by trying to sort of pick and choose which communities you listen to, you might set back efforts at reconciliation, which I know are, are among the very top uh, items on his priority list. Uh, so with respect uh, to, uh, to, to the polls that, uh, that you've referenced, uh, I think what we need to do is to continue to uh, ensure that our economy is working at full capacity, uh, but, uh, but we can't shortcut the road to reconciliation. Uh, we need to continue to listen to all of the different voices, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, uh, to ensure that we have a workable solution because we, we could show up, uh, well, I shouldn't say we, the RCMP could show up and start taking down every blockade, one of which uh, really remains in Quebec, um, but we'd be facing very similar uh, circumstance perhaps next week, next month, next year, and we're trying to identify a path forward that's going to actually provide a long-term solution that will be able to reconcile land rights issues and Indigenous rights more broadly uh, with the need to continue to grow our economy. It's not, not an easy thing, but we're working towards it. Oh, Chris, uh, Chris Donterman, I, I didn't ask you, what do you what does your party feel about whether the Prime Minister should be meeting with these hereditary chiefs who are opposed to the pipeline crossing their territory? Well, we've said from the start that the negotiation and discussion can go on at the same time that the RCMP are doing their job to uphold the uh, the, the law in uh, the different areas that the blockades are actually happening. You know, the, the, pr the problem we're run running into is that it's gone over and above a, a true reconciliation discussion or a discussion with her Indigenous nations. It's turned into an issue of, you know, if you if you do something hard enough and push it hard enough that this government will back away from uh, energy projects and, and things across this country. So, you know, we got to be able to, to have the discussion, have the reconciliation uh, discussions going on in this country because they're, they're much needed. But at the same time, we need to be able to understand that projects are important and need to go forward as well. Uh, Laurel Collins, where does your party stand on whether this pipeline should go ahead, um, given that there seems to be still considerable division within the Wet'suwet'en themselves between hereditary chiefs, between elected band councils, uh, depending on who you hear, there is a very different, there's a lot of division in that community. What's your party say about that? We've always said that in order for a project to go forward, it needs to have Indigenous parties at the table, that we need to go through a process of not only consultation, but that we're upholding Indigenous rights and title. That also these projects meet environmental standards, that there's benefits to the community. I think it's very obvious that right now the question of um, Indigenous title is not, it, it hasn't been addressed by this government. And I sat down with Indigenous youth in my community and listened to what their concerns were. And what they told me was that they don't want to have to, f they don't want their children to have to fight for 
basic human rights the way that they have, their parents have, and their grandparents have. And what we've seen from this government, you know, the Prime Minister says that the relationship with Indigenous peoples is the most important relationship in Canada. And yet he is continuing to take First Nations kids to court. We still have boil water advisories on First Nations reserves across Canada. And it is, it's been weeks. The hereditary chiefs have been asking for a meeting with the prime minister, nation-to-nation -nation relationships, for weeks, and he continues to refuse. Yet, he meets with these big oil companies, he meets with these big pharmaceutical companies. Why is he prioritizing the needs of big corporations and not actually meeting with indigenous leaders? Okay, Sean Fraser, I guess one of the overwhelming questions that comes out of this is that after these meetings, preliminary or I don't know whether they're preliminary or what they lead to, but if after these meetings the clear message comes from the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs that they are opposed to the pipeline over their territory, that uh, they want the pipeline redrawn, is there really a role for the federal government in all of this? Because that one, one would think that that would be a decision of the province and the company, Coastal Gas Link. So there's certainly, as you pointed out, serious elements of, of provincial jurisdiction. Of course, the uh, issue around permitting of the, this particular pipeline project uh, of Coastal Gas Link is, is within the, the provincial uh, government's uh, purview, uh, as is the, the actions of the RCMP, who are acting as the provincial police force on this file. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there's not a, an opportunity for federal participation. If you actually go back to uh, uh, the Delgamunk decision, uh, what, a quarter century ago, uh, which you learn about in your, your first year of law school, uh, you'll realize that the land rights uh, conversation is uh, that uh, was kicked off uh, decades ago uh, is is still um, in its infancy in some ways. I, I think right now the, the broader issue uh, that's at play that's uh, more properly within the purview of the federal government's uh, jurisdiction is to reconcile um, uh, di different uh, perspectives on, on what Indigenous land title, Indigenous rights uh, to land really means. Uh, this is not the kind of thing that I expect uh, will come to a uh, resolution completely for forever overnight, uh, but I do think we can make serious progress that can uh, ensure our economy is allowed to uh, operate without disruption and, and conduct these conversations in a respectful, a thoughtful and deliberate way. Uh, I don't see any other path forward uh, where uh, removing ourselves from the dialogue is going to be a, a productive event in terms of the ongoing controversy. Okay, uh, Chris Dontremont, just one last question. We still have one blockade that is functioning, uh, that is blocking rail traffic in this country and that is in Ganawaki, in Mohawk Territory in Ganawaki, just outside of Montreal. That has been up for several weeks now. That remains uh, your party position with regards to that. The, I know Quebec Premier Francois Legault has asked for intervention. The Sûreté du Québec says they're not going to intervene if the peacekeepers are not going to intervene. So it seems to be uh, static. What's your party's position on what should happen to that well, remaining blockade? I mean, ultimately, the, there should be some interventions there. Um, and I don't know how the discussion is going on with the, with a, with a local group. But, but ultimately, the, that is blocking the, the access to eastern Canada. And that is how uh, our, our products are, are getting to the eastern seaboard and those stuff, uh, those uh, products that are being shipped uh, through uh, through our ports uh, into central Canada so they, it needs to be solved uh, you know interventions need need to need to happen um, whether that's discussion or other I'm not too sure at this point okay last question Laura Collins if um, coming out of these meetings we have a path forward which involves building the pipeline maybe with modifications maybe not uh, would the NDP the federal NDP because we know the provincial NDP government uh, John Horgan 
help strike this deal, is the federal NDP uh, in favor if the, if the uh, band agrees to it, the First Nation agrees to it? So fundamentally, we haven't a answered the question of whether or not the First Nations communities are on board. I am hopeful that the, this, these talks will lead to something productive. If and they were to say, if they were to forward. say, and honestly, it is. It's been extremely disappointing to see this prime minister for weeks fail on his responsibility to First Nations communities and continue to refuse to meet. Okay, it's but, hard but to I mean, imagine. I'll just interrupt you. But the forward. only reason, but I'll interrupt because the only reason we want to ask the question is that one of the huge things in this whole debate has been whether is one just against pipelines or is one against pipelines that are not agreed to by the inhabitants of the region. If these first, Na if this First Nation, the Wet'suwet'en, should come to an agreement to go ahead with the pipeline, would your party be in favor of it? Fundamentally, the decisions around permits have already been made. Uh, and so the question that is up in the air right now is around Indigenous rights and around Indigenous land and title and around the uh, decisions that are made within Wissowatan territory. So that is the focus. And I, you know, when I heard my colleague from the Liberal Party say that it's, it wouldn't be good to kind of step out at this point, why didn't they step in weeks ago? Right. That's my question. Would it be a yes, though, if the uh, band, uh, if the First Nation says yes? So honestly, the the band, the First Nation band, has a number of them have said yes. We're talking about the difference between hereditary right. but I mean, if, they, if out of this meeting there is a consensus somehow formed, would you be in favor of it? For projects that have indigenous support, that meet climate agreements, and uh, that also benefit communities, we are in support of projects. For, com for projects that do not meet those standards, which, you know, it's very clear that in this case, we, have, we don't have a path forward. And we don't have a path forward because we haven't seen leadership from our federal government, and we haven't seen that leadership from our prime minister. Okay, well, all three of you, I want to thank you very much for the time. Thanks for speaking with us, and we will continue to watch this, obviously, with interest as, as things continue to evolve. Thank you very much, and have a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks so much. Take care. World stock markets continued to slump on Friday in response to concerns over the worldwide spread of the coronavirus. With more than 83,000 cases of the virus now reported in at least 50 countries, the concerns are growing about its potential impact on economies around the world. Yesterday, the Dow Jones Stock Exchange in New York City lost the most value in one day in its history. The biggest impact, obviously, is still in China, but Canada's economy is feeling the effects as well. I'm joined in the studio now by Perrin Beattie. He's president of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Mr. Beattie, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Let's start with what we've seen, the most visible manifestation we've seen over the past few days, and that is this incredible drop in volatility in the stock market. What do you make of that? Because there is the stock market, and then there's the rest of the economy. What do you make of that? Well, I think the most important thing is that we saw a change in the nature of the disease itself. It appears as if it isn't containable behind national boundaries. Mm -hmm. And when we're seeing person-to-person -person transmission within a country as opposed to somebody bringing it in from outside, that means that the disease is, is progressed to a, different, to a different stage. That meant that, that the, the financial community around the world looked at that and said, uh, we're dealing with something on a completely different order of magnitude. Okay. And they started to, uh, to have an adjustment in the stock market as a result. The stock market, for the most part, reflects anticipated profits and anticipated business. So the stock market, this is people with money in the markets anticipating a longer-term effect. What about the Canadian economy in general? Where are we vulnerable? Well, we're seeing the first effects already. If, if you're in the tourism sector, you're seeing that, that groups that you might have expected to have in from Asia, particularly from China, 
uh, aren't coming at this point. The same if, if you're a travel agent and you're booking people outgoing to Italy, for example, uh, you'll find that sales are off there significantly. If you're a convention planner for any time this year, uh, what are you going to be doing? Are you going to be trying to assemble large groups of people either in the spring or the fall? So that's a start. But uh, other elements of business, if, you're, if you require inputs from China or from other countries that have been hit, such as South Korea, are you confident of your supply chain? Mm -hmm. And uh, will this have an, a, a consequence here that you have to shut your business because you can't get the inputs that you need? What about market sales that you're making? Uh, China's share of the global GDP is twice what it was at the time of SARS. And this means then that, that a slowdown in China will have twice the effect that it, that it had back then. Speaking about SARS, in SARS in 2003, the biggest impact we found in Canada was largely tourism and travel, uh, visitors coming uh, and travel in general. Uh, this, you, you mentioned because of supply chains, because of inputs, because of manufacturing, much more dependent. What about markets? I was down in eastern Canada during the election and it seemed that all the growth in, for example, in seafood products was, was the, the Asian market. And that's a that's a major concern. The supply chains are being are being disrupted. Markets themselves are being disrupted, and it is going to spill through all aspects of Canadian economy of, of Canada's economy if this goes on for a long time. There's good news and bad news comparing to SARS. It it, it appears to be less deadly than SARS, uh, but it appears to be more readily spreadable, and it appears to be more long-lasting than SARS. Mm. As a consequence, then. Uh, as businesses do their planning, we simply don't know at this point whether when warmer weather comes in the spring we'll see it dying down. We don't know whether it's going to be coming back in the fall. We don't know whether this will be a chronic problem that will come back year after year in the same way as influenza does. Is there a group of businesses that is more susceptible, more vulnerable in Canada? I mean, uh, if, for example, the big corporations or the smaller SMEs, the small and medium-sized enterprises? As a result of SARS, uh, they if, if you can say there's any good news that came out of the fact that Canada, and particularly Toronto, were at the epicenter of the concern over SARS, uh, it is that, that this was a laboratory for us for pandemics yet to come. Okay. And it means that our public health authorities are better prepared than ever before. They handled it, I think, exceptionally well with something that, that was just out of the blue. Uh, we can handle this better as a result of that experience. Larger businesses now have contingency plans in place and are ready to, to deal with this. Where my concern is, is that 90% plus of the businesses in Canada are SMEs. Mm. And uh, when you're in an SME, you're so busy dealing with the day-to-day -day issues that are, that are coming in that you often don't get the opportunity to, to look out over the horizon and, and to plan. Uh, we urgently need help for SMEs to give them the information they need to, to prepare themselves. Simple questions. If 20 to 40 percent of your workforce were unable to come into work, how could you keep your doors open? Is it possible for your employees to telecommute, something that, that wasn't as possible uh, during, the SARS, during the SARS breakout? Um, do you have a line of credit at the bank? If, if you had to close your doors for two or three weeks, could you reopen them? Do you have that credit at the bank to be able to to, uh, to, to restart. What about your suppliers? Um, do you know whether, any of, whether all of your suppliers have themselves business continuity plans that ensures that you can get your hands on the inputs that are necessary? What are you seeing? Because we're seeing very varied estimates of the potential 
for the drop in gross domestic product in the economy, in economic output, both of Canada and the world economy, and estimates for China. What are you seeing? I mean, what kind of ballpark are we seeing? Bottom line is we don't know. Yeah. We don't know how serious this is. It is uh, it's different from any other recent pandemic that we've had. It's on the verge of being declared a, a, a pandemic. Uh, we don't know. And uh, they, so what this means then is that we have to take prudent steps. It, it means not panic, mm -hmm. but preparation. On the macroeconomic level, we saw the Chinese central bank or the Chinese government inject billions and billions of dollars into their economy to try and stimulate and try and offset some of the, the slowing down of their economy. There's talk that there could be a concerted effort. I saw a quote from a former chair or a deputy chair of the Fed, of the American Fed, saying that there could be a plan hatched, like there was in 2008, faced with the global recession in 2008, a sort of a stabilization plan, but it would have to be organized between a lot of the industrialized countries. Uh, is that something that you think that is being talked about? I believe that, I, I believe we are going to be seeing that. Um, uh, when, we, when we looked at the 2008 crisis, it was when the meeting was convened in Washington mm -hmm. and governments came together that there was some coherence in terms of trying to get the financial system back on track. When you're dealing with a, with a, a virus like this, a physical virus as well as an economic virus, now, it's important to have concerted global action, so I would be very surprised if, if we did not see that. And we need to see it sooner as opposed to later. Something just coming into my head, the last time I had you sitting here in front of me, we were talking about Donald Trump and his particular views on the economy. He's not a multi multilateralist. Do you think no. compared to 2008 in Washington and Pittsburgh and those meetings, we might have more difficult getting well, concerted and, and international and it, efforts? It was worrisome where he in essence dismissed the issue uh, just a couple of days ago where he said, well, we have it under control, nothing to worry about, it will disappear magically with warmer weather yeah. in April. Well he may be a much better scientist than the people at the Centers for Disease Control. Nobody can say yeah. with any certainty at this point. So we need to, to d take prudent measures to prepare and we need to coordinate what we're doing. The other, the other challenge that we have compared to 2008 is that interest rates are already at record low levels. There's not the same flexibility yeah. that governments had at that time to cut interest rates to stimulate the economy. And here in Canada, Prior to 2008, all of our senior levels of government had their books in balance. Yeah. We don't have the same fiscal flexibility now. As a last question then, briefly, you mentioned government. Uh, we're anticipating in, in several weeks a uh, federal budget possibly. Uh, any advice on whether you think the federal government might want to think twice before having a budget uh, to try and get the better lay of the land in terms of the economic impact of this? Uh, I don't know that delaying the budget would be the best course, but, I, but the message certainly I would have for the government is you need to concentrate on fundamentals. Um, after we saw a, a final quarter last year that was below expectations, after the blockades with the coronavirus coming at us, after the tech decision which will affect investment in Canada, uh, we have a fire in the kitchen, you don't spend your time worrying about redecorating the living room. Focus on the fundamentals. Okay. Perrin Beattie, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. The World Health Organization gave an update today about the continuing spread of the coronavirus around the world. New cases of the virus have been detected in five more countries since Thursday, with outbreaks outside of China, especially in Italy and Iran, feeding the spread. The WHO is still not declaring COVID-19 a pandemic, but today it did raise its assessment of the risk level of infection from moderate to high. 
There was one encouraging note, though, in today's data. The epicenter of the outbreak, China, overnight recorded the lowest number of new cases of infection in a month. Now, here's part of what the Director General of the World Health Organization had to say today in Geneva. The continued increase in the number of cases and the number of affected countries over the last few days are clearly of concern. Our epidemiologists have been monitoring this development continuously, and we have now increased our assessment of the risk of spread and the risk of impact of COVID-19 to very high at global level. What we see at the moment are linked epidemics of COVID-19 in several countries, but most cases can still be traced to known contacts or clusters of cases. We do not see evidence as yet that the virus is spreading freely in communities. As long as that's the case, we still have a chance of containing this virus. If robust action is taken to detect cases early, isolate and care for patients, and trace contacts. Well, that was the Director General of the World Health Organization speaking to reporters in Geneva on Friday. Now, to look at the health challenges still ahead of us as the novel coronavirus continues its worldwide spread, I'm joined now from Toronto by Dr. Isaac Bogash. He is a specialist in infectious disease with the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Bogash, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me here. Uh, quick question. Um, the WHO so far has not declared this, the COVID-19 as a pandemic yet, and yet many of you, you and many of your colleagues are saying that the situation is evolving from an epidemic to a pandemic. Uh, can you explain what that means? Yeah, so I mean, really all a pandemic refers to is the global uh, spread of an infection. And whether or not we use that term today or in two days or in two weeks, you know, quite frankly, I think it's kind of irrelevant. The, uh, the messaging also from the WHO and even from senior health leadership in Canada has been to prepare for more imported cases and prepare for the possibility of locally acquired cases. So if we're not calling it a pandemic, we're still getting messaging to prepare for one. And it's interesting you mentioned that because one of the senior officials at the World Health Organization briefing today, which we're going to play later in the show, he says that the approach is still the same in the sense that there's still going to be a degree of containment, as we saw in China, with relative success and mitigation in terms of taking care of the, the cases that come up. Yeah. I mean, I think when we're talking about the term containment, I hope no one gets the impression that we actually think that we can truly contain this infection in the sense that we build a theoretical wall around it so it doesn't spread. That's not what's going to happen. We've seen these massive public health initiatives in China. Uh, they worked very well to slow down the spread of this virus, but they didn't stop the virus. And I think the realistic strategy here is whatever initiatives are taken, it might slow down the progression of this virus uh, as it spreads from country to country and as we see more and more cases in currently affected countries. But I don't think that we're going to be able to stop this virus from, from spreading. So as you point out, mitigation strategies are also extremely helpful. How can we mitigate the impact that this virus has in Canada, in our provinces, in our cities, in our communities, and also globally as well. What is the most difficult thing about this virus? 
Well, I think one of the, no, there's several. Uh, one is that we didn't even know it existed about two months ago. So, you know, there's been a rapid, steep learning curve. Uh, but it's rather impressive, at, you know, the amount of data that's been generated and useful data, high quality data, and also data sharing that we've seen in the last two months. So we're certainly a lot better off now than we were, you know, two weeks ago and two months ago. I think one of several issues that really comes up is that, you know, on the plus side, we know that the vast majority of people who get this infection probably have a pretty mild course of infection. Uh, but that also means that it's more challenging to stop the spread of this infection because if people aren't sick enough to seek medical care, if people aren't sick enough to really realize that maybe they have this infection, they can continue to transmit it to others. And this is, I think, why we're seeing it spread in many communities. So it's not as infectious as the flu, where the flu, you can be asymptomatic and you're already shedding the virus, but because they're mild symptoms, we're not seeing people uh, showing symptoms and they are starting to become contagious. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know, right? There's There certainly has been a few cases of people who did not have any symptoms of this infection. Okay. Some of those cases, when you scratch the surface of it, you realize those people actually did have symptoms. Others, maybe not so much. It's not entirely clear what the degree of transmission is in people with zero symptoms who ultimately don't develop any symptoms. That's that's still an unknown. But we know that people with mild symptoms uh, can certainly shed the virus. And we know people with mild symptoms uh, are increasingly uh, represented in some of the data that's being generated. And there may be a, a significant proportion of people who have this infection who just don't feel all that sick, but are, are certainly spreading the virus to others. What's going to be the biggest challenge if and when we get our outbreak here? So in other words, we have you know a case which is then spreading other cases in Toronto or Montreal or wherever, if and when it happens in Canada. Yeah, certainly I think we're going to really need to have um, our healthcare systems and our public health systems firing on all cylinders in order to manage this. And, you know, over the last few weeks, there's been behind the scenes a lot of scale up on this front in terms of communication strategies, coordination strategies, laboratory capacity strategies, looking at where the there's the potential to put patients and, and, and think about patient flow through uh, through emergency departments and hospitals. And, you know, it's like it's, it's hard to find a silver lining in the midst of a uh, you know, when you're sitting on the precipice of a pandemic. But one of the silver linings, at least for us in Canada, is that our influenza season is coming to uh, an end. And we're certainly in the tail end of the influenza season. Influenza is a busy time in Canadian hospitals. We just see more patients with influenza and influenza-like illnesses. You know, the emergency departments are busy, the wards are busy, the intensive care units are busy. And thankfully, uh, you know, the timing of COVID-19 does not overlap with our influenza season, which will be helpful because we'll just have more capacity in hospitals if the need arises. I was reading something out of the United States and it was a physician who was writing saying he was very concerned about the United States because, because of lack of public health care. A lot of people go to their physicians, their family physicians, and he says that people who are potentially contagious will be going to family physician waiting rooms. What's the best advice to Canadians if you're starting to feel symptoms and you're wondering whether it might be coronavirus or the flu or a really, really bad cold? Is it to go yeah, and I see? Mean, Sorry. Oh, well, what I was going to say is we're getting some very good advice and guidance from senior health leadership in the country. So, for example, Dr. Teresa Tamar, Canada's chief public health officer, just released um, a really helpful document today 
that's essentially a playbook for healthcare providers on, you know, diagnostic testing and personal protective uh, equipment and managing cases and, you know, and, and so we are getting some very good guidance from uh, senior public health and clinical leadership in the country. And this is going to be extremely helpful to frontline healthcare providers and also to, uh, to the general public. Uh, I think the other thing to appreciate is, you know, we're still learning more about this infection and guidance will change as we learn more. So, you know, some people think, oh, you know, we were doing it this way and now we're doing it this way. That's actually reflective of you know, knowledge translation and learning more about this virus and then translating it into meaningful, actionable items that we use to care for people or we use to care for communities. And, uh, you know, currently, you know, people are now getting diagnosed in, in emergency departments for this infection. But you can see a time where if there's a, a greater number of cases here in Canada, where, you know, that might not be the best strategy. And maybe there'll be, you know, we can facilitate outpatient diagnoses or even say, you know what, if you're not feeling unwell, stay home. So, you know, I, I expect to see evolution of our strategies with how we're dealing with cases and also communities affected by this infection. Uh, in a few words for uh, for the average Canadian, wash your hands, be uh, be aware of what's going on and maybe make preparations if you should have to self-quarantine? Yeah, I, I mean, certainly uh, it's still a respiratory virus, so the same rules apply. Cough into your arm, wash your hands, impeccable hand hygiene, stay at home if you're sick. The other thing too that I think people can do is if people have chronic medical conditions or other medical needs, now's a really good time to get those looked at. Now's a good time to optimize your health. It's a great time to fill your prescriptions, make sure that you know if you need to have, be vaccinated, be updated on your vaccinations, and really ensure that your other chronic health care needs are optimized You know now in preparation for possible infections in the near future. Okay, Dr. Bogach, I wanna thank you very much for taking the time. Anytime. Well, joining me now to take a look at the week in federal politics are three colleagues from the Parliamentary Press Gallery. Bob Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. Catherine Lévesque is a parliamentary reporter for La Presse. And Susan Delacourt is a columnist for the Toronto Star. All three of you, welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. For us. Let's start with the meetings that were going on. Before we even got the cameras rolling, we were saying that the, the mood and the, the tone right now is a bit different from about a week ago or even the beginning of this week because we do have ongoing meetings now in Smithers, B.C. between uh, federal and provincial ministers and the, the uh, Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs. Let's start with that. What do you make of where it's going from here? Start with you, Bob. Well, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Uh, this has been, uh, we're heading into our fourth week now and there hasn't been a resolution of this. And the hereditary chiefs, the five hereditary chiefs, do not seem to be showing any willingness to compromise, even though the majority of the people uh, on the Wet'suwet'en lands want the, the pipeline. The majority of the hereditary chiefs, including the matriarchs, want it because they want jobs for their people and economic opportunities. But it does not look like at, the, at least this stage, that there's uh, an avenue for a resolution of this. And we could be sitting here and when the first ministers meet in a couple of weeks' time with this issue still before the country. So notwithstanding the smiles and the claims of progress that they're actually now finally sitting down and they're, having, they're starting to lay out a framework for, for meetings, Catherine? That's just the start of something. Is it yeah. the start of the resolution? I'm not sure because this is not just about the pipeline anymore. This is about reconciliation. This is a much bigger subject now that we're talking about. 
and I, I don't think they're going to they're going to be done as of today. I think this is going to go on for during the weekend, and we've yeah. been all week holding our breath, trying to see what will happen as of now. But I don't think there's going to be a clear resolution. I mean, but the, you know, in some way they'll have to come with the resolution. But I'm not sure what that is going to be. I don't know if that's going to be acceptable, and I don't know whether or not the chiefs are going to. Uh, you know, ask the the last blockade right now is, is in Kanawake to stop. So we'll mm. we'll try to see what happens during the weekend. But as of right now, we don't have any indication. The, okay, Susan, the preparation. I mean, what we've been told is that this is in preparation for you know setting up a framework for future discussions and eventually a meeting with the prime minister and prime minister and Premier Horgan. Yeah, uh, before uh, between last week, as you mentioned, and this week, it got worse. Mm -hmm. you no, know? and I've been struck by the indigenous voices, as Bob was referring to, um, the, the the people within their own community who are saying this is not helping, yeah. um, and the poll numbers showing that support for reconciliation, while Canadians may support it notionally, uh, this has done a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been saying this since the beginning. It's not just the damage to the government. It's the damage to the idea of indigenous reconciliation in this country. And I think if cooler heads do prevail in some way, and the incentive to for cooler heads doesn't seem to exist yet, um, but if cooler heads prevail, maybe they can get this back on track, pardon the pun. I mean, but look, what would happen if if five hereditary chiefs said, we support the pipeline, mm -hmm. but the majority hereditary chiefs and the majority of the band said, yeah. no, we're against this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, guess what all these people would be doing? They'd be the radical, and I, I mean, I'm talking about some anarchists and anti-capitalists who seem to have glommed onto this for their own reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, because they oppose pipelines, they would be they would be siding with the majority and saying the hereditary chiefs don't count. But they, we have a, a big problem here, and, and Susan's nailed it. I mean, they are doing irreparable harm to uh, Canadians. Do want a, a process of reconciliation with First Nations? But if your if your jobs are being threatened, you can't get to work. They're holding up go trains, and, and you're holding up good work pipelines, that is not a solution. I guess so that still then poses a question. We saw, for example, yesterday that they let, at the beginning of the meetings, they let some of the pipeline supporters in, uh, some of the matriarchs and some of the, the, the local uh, First Nation members were allowed in to have their say. The question is, though, you're, you're Prime Minister Trudeau, you are Carolyn Bennett, you are having these discussions. The hereditary chiefs seem to be fairly adamant that they don't want it across their territory. Uh, they want either no pipeline or a complete change in, in the trajectory. What does the Prime Minister do? Is there a serious plan for him to be meeting with them, or is that just a non-starter? Oh, well, uh, you, 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 you do want to be careful of not elevating this to yeah. a matter of a national leader talking to and especially with the divisions within yeah um, so I, th I think one does want to be careful and, and John Horgan the premier has been speaking up about that too they've been demanding that Horgan meet with them as well but they have to avoid being seen to get into the middle of that dispute between the hereditary chiefs yeah. and the the other ones so I, I think the groundwork does have to be laid uh, Trudeau is in a very difficult position though yeah. he is trying to play the middle 
and the middle is a very hard place to play in Canadian You were mentioning Ganawake as well. I mean, Ganawake, we still have one outstanding, uh, outstanding yes. blockade in Ganawake. Uh, they're interesting development this week because you have the, the Premier of Quebec, Francois Legault, saying he wants action on it. The Sûreté de Quebec has said, no, we're not going to go in if the peacekeepers are not going to intervene for us. There's a long history there. Where does that go? Well, I think it's interesting because uh, what Premier Legault said this week was a counterexample of, well, it's an example of what not to do because yeah. he was one of the first uh, premiers to say, hey, the police has to intervene, something has to be done, and now the last blockade is in Quebec, and yeah. he's justifying the fact that uh, the Sûreté du Québec can't access the territory, and he's blaming it on illegal guns. So basically, this is not helping the conversation right now. It, yeah. It's just reinforcing also, I think, racism I mean, against Indigenous peoples, and that's kind of what we see in Quebec yeah. right now. So that that's, I mean, it's very divisive language. It's very dangerous, mm -hmm. but also proves the fact, well, maybe proves a point to the Trudeau government that maybe, yeah, we should just tone things down hope to you know get a resolution somehow but premier I mean definitely in Quebec this is not a good situation as Susan mentions though I mean if, if uh, you've all mentioned if reconciliation is being so sorely tested by the situation by this very very intractable disagreement on what's so in territory the Prime Minister's popularity is going down uh, the polling is showing well, he's going down because he hasn't been doing very much he was, when this first started, he was in Africa, had very little to say. Yeah. He came back and said it was a provincial responsibility, he washed his hands of it. And then he started, when the Conservatives started getting on him, although they used language that was probably a little too over the top, uh, he said, oh, we want dialogue, we want dialogue, we're not going to, we don't need to have to have the police involved, yeah. and next thing you know, uh, by the Thursday or the Friday, he was saying, well, can't do this anymore, we, and the police did start to act. I think probably, I, I think people see weakness in the Prime Minister, and I think if, if they had acted earlier in arresting, not, not, not talking about Indigenous people, but starting to arrest some of these protesters who are holding up the, the trains, yeah. um, we, we might not have been in the situation we are in. And in all of this, in about two weeks' time, we have a First Minister's Conference. Uh, announced yesterday on the 13th of March, Friday the 13th, what could go wrong, um, and with a meeting of the major Aboriginal groups on the 12th, on Thursday night, uh, in the middle of March. So you have that meeting coming up. Uh, where does that figure into things? Well, I, you know, not so long ago, we thought that was going to be the hardest thing that happened to Trudeau this year with yeah. the First Ministers. It was originally supposed to happen the first week of February, yeah. and it's been put off and put off and put off. I think not just for these reasons, but um, it definitely is the second ring or maybe the seventh ring in a many ring circus that is yeah. going on right now. I thought you were going to say the many rings of hell, Dante's yeah, Inferno. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet you it feels like that way inside <laughs> government. Um, so I'm curious to see whether um, it's the old issues from last fall that dominate this First Minister's Conference or whether events have taken over mm. as well because certainly the dialogue between Jason Kenney and the Prime Minister has moved a long way for good or for ill since yeah. after the election. There have been some moments of rapprochement and there have been some tech mine, um, yeah. you know, uh, has, has thrown them apart too. But uh, I, I don't know exactly why. I think it's obvious, but that the Indigenous meeting was first um, mm -hmm. yeah. and then the Premier's that tells you that whatever has been going on this past two months is setting the stage for that meeting, unlike the election setting the stage mm -hmm. for it. Catherine, what will you be watching for in that first meeting? I mean, I know it's a while off yet, but... 
Yeah, no, it's, it's in two weeks, but still I asked the PMO what are they expecting to be working on? And the answer I got was, we will focus on the economy and clean growth. And I thought the wording was quite interesting because we're certainly we're going to be talking about uh, big projects happening yeah. in Canada. Can they still happen? And you know, what's the path forward? And certainly, uh, prime ministers from provinces will have a lot of questions on this. Yeah. And so, just the fact that we're wording this like clean growth, I mean, mm -hmm. I think it's kind of sets the stage that well, big polluting projects can't happen anymore. So that's the feeling I get. And yeah. I think it's go there's going to be a lot of lively discussions over there. Mm -hmm. Well, they're trying to set the table for the budget that's going to happen later in the month. Yeah, uh, that's for sure. But one of the things that they this government needs to do, um, they need to get moving a lot quicker on what their <laughs> climate change strategy is yeah. so Canadian businesses can know where they can invest or what they have to undertake. And they also have to, because Jason Kenney's been irresponsible, he's been throwing all kinds of firebombs at the federal government, he has a responsibility too, as we heard from the tech resources, they want both Alberta and Saskatchewan and the federal government to sit down at the table and to get some reasonable climate change strategy that will allow investment in our very important resources. At the same time, we have to be serious about dealing with uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And there doesn't seem to be any willingness on the part of Mr. Kenny uh, to do that, and he, you know, he's got to put some water in his wine as well. Mm -hmm. The thinking is too. I mean, the other piece of it, of the agenda, which was put off uh, after Christmas, and that is a fiscal stabilization program, much wanted by the provinces. They well, want they'll that get that in the budget. That'll come in the budget. Yeah. Yeah. So this will be a chance maybe to promise it at the uh, premier's meeting. I, I think, yeah, they they had said. Uh, I, I think it was a month ago. It's hard to measure time these days, but I think about a month ago they said there would be nothing on fiscal yeah. stabilization at the premier's meeting so wait for the budget right. wait for the budget mm -hmm. yeah okay last question uh, we have seven candidates and potentially another two to be confirmed in the conservative leadership race reactions just briefly now that we know them all it's the b team i mean <laughs> certainly <laughs> no <laughs> well i it's it's true i mean there's Peter McKay, sure, but and all the other front runners, you know, the big names we were hoping for, are not running this time around. Yeah. And we essentially have a, quite a big field of candidates, but I mean, there a lot of people don't know who these people are, and these are people who just want to be noticed. Also, me worth mentioning that these people are not confirmed official candidates yet because yeah. they, they still have to give the uh, $300,000. Yeah. So, Except um, for Peter McKay, who's made all of the payments yes, and done everything. Yes, their exactly. is, yeah. is on his way as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a crowded field, and I think where there's not going to be a lot of debate, there's a lot of consensus. Campaign pro-life and the social conservative groups have a lot of candidates that they are touting for. Uh, several of the, the uh, yeah, I guess we could say less popular or less well-known names, there's at least three to four candidates who are getting the, getting the nod from the campaign. How's that affecting the major candidates? Well, go ahead. Uh, well, I, I was struck by the role of those groups in the last leadership race, yep. and we saw how that turned out. Um, Bob and I would have long enough memories to remember when parties are weak, um, single interest issue, single interest, single issue, um, groups like this yeah. tend to see parties as a place for a right for takeover. Um, I would see the fact that they are continuing their influence in the Conservative Party as a sign that the party, its fundraising may be strong, but the party organization is weak. Mm -hmm. This is not a vote-getter for the Conservative Party to, say the to be uh, <laughs> with uh, pro-life groups and giving them such a stage which they will get at the convention 
mm -hmm. and people are going to walk away saying, uh-oh, they haven't learned their lesson yet. And, you know, that was one of the reasons why Mr. Uh, Mr. Scheer, is the pro-life but also the homophobic stuff, um, lost the election campaign, climate change as well. But that mm -hmm. clearly was an issue for them. And I, I, it's, it's it, not, it doesn't help them. Yeah. It's one of the reasons he won the, the, yep. the, the, the leadership and he lost the election, and that's because two different contests. Mm -hmm. And we, you want women voters and you young, <laughs> young voters. Mm -hmm. You have yeah. to expand your base if you want to win. Yeah, and, and the urban voters, I mean, yeah. 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 they have to, yeah, that, that was their goal. That's what exactly what they said just after the election. Now we are here <laughs> talking about abortion again. Well, we've got a few months still to talk about the, the conservative uh, leadership race. I want to thank uh, all three of you for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. As we mentioned earlier, the World Health Organization gave its latest update on Friday of the worldwide spread of the coronavirus. There are now cases of COVID-19 in at least 50 countries. And although the WHO is not declaring the situation a pandemic, it has raised its level of the risk of infection to high. The WHO is concerned about the multiplication of centers of outbreak, which now includes South Korea, Iran and Italy. Here is the Director General of the World Health Organization giving its latest update from Geneva on Friday. We do not see evidence as yet that the virus is spreading freely in communities. As long as that's the case, we still have a chance of containing this virus. If robust action is taken to detect cases early, isolate and care for patients, and trace contacts. As I said yesterday, there are different scenarios in different countries and different scenarios within the same country. The key to containing this virus is to break the chain of transmission. Yesterday, I spoke about the things countries must do to prepare for cases and prevent onward transmission. The report of the WHO-China Joint Mission has now published its report, which is available in English on the WHO website and will also be posted in Chinese on the National Health Commission website. The report includes a wealth of information and 22 recommendations for China, for affected and unaffected countries, for the international community and the general public. It calls for all countries to educate their populations, to expand surveillance, to find, isolate, and care for every case, to trace every contact, and to take an all-of-government and all-of-society approach. This is not a job for the health ministry alone. At the same time, work is also progressing on vaccines and therapeutics. More than 20 vaccines are in development globally, and several therapeutics are in clinical trials. We expect the first results in a few weeks. But we don't need to wait for vaccines and the therapeutics. There are things every individual can do to protect themselves and others today.
your risk depends on where you live, your age, and general health. WHO can provide general guidance. You should also follow your national guidance and consult local health professionals. But there are 10 basic things that you should know. First, as we keep saying, clean your hands regularly with an alcohol-based hand rub or wash them with soap and water. Touching your face after touching contaminated surfaces or sick people is one of the ways the virus can be transmitted. By cleaning your hands, you can reduce your risk. Second, clean surfaces regularly with disinfectant, for example, kitchen benches and work desks. Third, educate yourself about COVID-19. Make sure your information comes from reliable sources. Your local or national public health agency, the WHO website, or your local health professional, everyone should know the symptoms. For most people, it starts with a fever and a dry cough, not a runny nose. Most people will have mild disease and get better without needing any special care. Fourth, avoiding traveling if you have a fever or cough. And if you become sick while on flight, inform the crew immediately. Once you get home, make contact with a health professional and tell them about where you have been. Fifth, if you cough or sneeze, do it in your sleeve or use a tissue. Dispose of the tissue immediately into a closed rubbish bin and then clean your hands. Sixth, if you're over 60 years old, or if you have an underlying condition like cardiovascular disease, a respiratory condition or diabetes, you have a higher risk of developing severe disease. You may wish to take extra precaution to avoid crowded areas or places where you might interact with people who are sick. Seventh, for everyone, if you feel unwell, stay at home and call your doctor for local health professional or local health professional. He or she will ask some questions about your symptoms, where you have been and who you have had contact with. This will help to make sure you get the right advice, are directed to the right health facility, and will prevent you from infecting others. Eighth, if you're sick, stay at home and eat and sleep separately from your family. Use different utensils and cutlery to eat. Ninth, if you develop shortness of breath, call your doctor and seek care immediately. And tenth, it's normal and understandable to feel anxious, especially if you live in a country or community that has been affected. Find out what you can do in your community. Discuss how to stay safe with your workplace, school, or place of worship. Together, we're powerful. Containment starts with you. Our greatest enemy right now is not the virus itself. It's fear, rumors, and stigma.
and our greatest asset are facts, reason, and solidarity. I thank you. Well, that's all for another edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, the cable public affairs channel. I'm Martin Stringer. Thanks for watching and have a great weekend.